Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. So what did we learn today, the 17th day of February? Well, one of the things I learned was to listen to Clay Jacobs. He is the executive director of the Alzheimer's Association, the Greater Pennsylvania Chapter. And he came on talking about the recent announcement from the family of Bruce Willis having to do with a form of dementia that the longtime actor has. How is it different from Alzheimer's? Is it different from Alzheimer's? And where exactly do we go moving forward with understanding what is dementia? Is there a stigma attached to that? Take a listen. Clay Jacobs talking about Alzheimer's Association and dementia with Bruce Willis. Word came down yesterday that Bruce Willis, who has been a long-known Hollywood star, his family made the announcement that his aphasia has progressed and he was recently diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. And that's a degenerative disease as it continues on. And we're going to talk right now with somebody who understands a lot of these terms and can sort of put it into perspective for us as it relates to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And he is the executive director of the Alzheimer's Association, Greater Pennsylvania Chapter. Please welcome into the program, Clay Jacobs. Clay, how are you? And thank you for being here. Of course, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having us and being able to, to just lift up this important issue and some of the topics that come out following the Willis family's announcement. Let's start with what may seem to you to be a very mundane, run-of-the-mill question that you hear all the time. But is there a difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? And if so, how? There is, and it, it's certainly not a mundane question because even just a generation ago, we talked about hardening the arteries or senility but really dementia is a syndrome or a category of diseases that have similar symptoms, things like memory loss and personality changes, word finding difficulty. And so dementia is just that something's going on, but really the different hallmarks of the different diseases that make it up, there's a, a wide variety. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, but even things like frontal temporal dementia are just different types. Just like no cancer is the same, there are different forms of cancer, there are different forms of dementia that have different symptoms and different uh, progressions as well. So if we see this particular um, situation right now, this FTD, this frontotemporal degeneration that, that Bruce Willis's family says he has been diagnosed with, what does that mean? What does it look like? Does, does it represent different than what we may have come to know with Alzheimer's? It does, and it's a really important distinction. And so we know 
Alzheimer's disease has hallmarks like plaques and tangles in the brain that certain the, in certain parts of the brain it starts. But uh, frontal temporal dementia, or FTD, actually starts in the frontal lobe of the brain. And so it, it has different hallmarks to it. It starts in a different area. And so we often see different symptoms. Even one of the important, when we talk about this recent disclosure, people with FTD tend to be diagnosed earlier, typically in their mm. 40s or 50s, even rarely in their early 60s. So there's certainly some symptoms we can talk about, but it is starting in a different part of the brain and tends to affect a, a different population as well. So it used to be that with Alzheimer's, you wouldn't get a diagnosis until literally there was an autopsy done, right? Because you had to get into the brain to see those t- the plaque, the tangles that you're talking about. In the- Is the same thing true? I mean, how do they have a diagnosis for FTD? Is it simply because it is, it, it's different or are they able to see it with scans and things like that that don't involve actually invasive procedures? Yeah, that's so there are a number of things, and even with Alzheimer's disease, we can diagnose pretty accurately now. Things like uh, MRIs and PET scans can mm-hmm. show the activity in the brain, and some of the things we see are the things that, that we do, that physicians see. And so we know those with FTD not only are affected earlier, um, unlike Alzheimer's disease that may have difficulty finding the right word, those with FTD often have issues with uh, speech or understanding the speech of others. Um, you know, we may see things like uh, in Alzheimer's disease issues with spatial orientation, right? For people getting lost to familiar places, mm-hmm. we don't see an FED. But so we see different symptoms where language or other things come into play. And then we can do things like PET scans and others to rule out other issues or to see what areas of the brain are impacted. And so a lot of that, when we look at FTD and those in their 40s and 50s, if we see big changes in behavior or speaking, writing or comprehending language, those are a lot of things that then trigger a diagnosis and some of the further discussions in this form of dementia. Visiting with Clay Jacobs with the Alzheimer's Association, Greater Pennsylvania Chapter. He's the executive director. Clay, how much does having a very well-known, very public announcement like this one from the Willis family, how much does that do for you and the work that you do with Alzheimer's? I mean, does that carry over or do people look at this and say, well, you know, I, I, that's really sad for Bruce Willis, but I'm not going to do it. Do you understand where I'm coming from? Does it make a difference? I mean, do the phones ring? Do people donate more because they, they love what Bruce has done and, and, and they, they want to help? Or is it sort of something that it's, that they're not related? Yeah. Well, and, and even us being here today is a great example, right? There is so often when we talk about dementia, uh, misunderstandings around what dementia is, what various forms of dementia are, the urgency to seek an accurate and early diagnosis, or even the comfort to talk about it, right? And so as we look at this, and while we can't speak to this personal history, just sharing a health diagnosis of any kind is incredibly brave. Mm. And it's a way for those who are feeling like maybe they're not seen or having symptoms that they're not comfortable talking about, a whole slew of things. How do you have that conversation? And to know that truly there are various things that could be happening that regardless of age, or other components that it's in place, anything that lifts up this discussion is really important. And if it helps anyone reach out to their family physician or talk with their family, um, that, that makes a tremendous difference. And so, yes, that when we see champions like this who are willing to share their story, we know things like our 24-7 helpline will get more calls because people use that as a prompt to say, you know what, I'm going to reach out and find more about what's going on for me. 
And it may be that even though I hear about frontal temporal, it may end up being that they're dealing with Alzheimer's or something else, right? That at least it opens the conversation and allows you to or somebody else to say, this is where I think you need to go for more assistance. It is. And that's ultimately what we are the Alzheimer's Association. We work across all dementias, our services and supports and other work. And so this idea, if we notice things that are impacting your ability to take part in activities of daily life or memory issues occurring in those pieces, the single greatest thing you could do, reach out and start to try and figure out what's going on and and the impact that could make. Is there still a stigma with that word dementia? Is that still something that people kind of cringe when they hear or is it less now? I I like to think it's less. I think you certainly hear and hear more people talk about it, but we still know it impacts relationships and connections for those who are in the workforce, you know, we may be less uh, likely to share. So there is certainly still a stigma. And even as we talk about things like talking with our physician, you know, if we see changes occurring, we may write them off as normal aging or things we can bypass. And so often at least folks who reach out to us are reaching to us when things have progressed um, to a point that, that you can't ignore them anymore. And so stigma, lack of access, lack of understanding, all those things come into play. And hopefully, like other chronic diseases, we're moving past that because we know that's how we can have the best impact on people's lives. Clay, thanks for helping us to continue the conversation. Absolutely. It's a pleasure, and thank you for sharing some of this great information. Clay Jacobs with us, Executive Director of Alzheimer's Association, Greater Pennsylvania Chapter, talking to us here today on KDKA. Also on the program, there is a law that is right now being proposed, being considered in California, that would make it so that police can no longer use canine police officers if those dogs would be used in a role where they might bite someone. Many times the issue has to do with whether they are used disproportionately in the apprehension of African-Americans and that as a result, people in the black community have said that there are significant fears over these police dogs. Where do you come down on it? Should this be a tool? Should this be taken off the table? What do you think about it? We're talking about it on KDKA. It's 37 minutes past 3 o'clock on a chilly, chilly, chilly Friday afternoon here in February. This is the kind of stuff we expect in February, right? Not 72 degrees or whatever it was on Wednesday. 29 degrees right now, and some people seeing some flurries out there as well. Hey, we're switching subjects here to go from the Kentucky Revival that's going on on a college campus and has for more than a week to a story from California where law enforcement agencies in the Golden State would be prevented from using police canines, would be prevented from using them, put in situations where they could bite someone under a new bill being considered by state lawmakers in an end to, uh, excuse me, in an effort to end the, quote, deeply racialized and harmful practice, one of the bill's authors said. The Assembly members, Corey Jackson and Ash Colra, said that AB 742, that's the bill name, could help to end a practice with troubling history involving black communities and police dogs. And they announced it at a Monday news conference. Under this bill, law enforcement would be prohibited from using police dogs in apprehensions, arrests, and crowd control, according to the bill's text. 
The use of police canines has inflicted brutal violence and lifelong trauma on black Americans and communities of color, said Jackson in a statement. This bill marks a turning point in the fight to end this cruel and inhumane practice and build trust between the police and the communities they serve. Again, that's part of Jackson's statement. Corey Jackson, who is an assembly member in California. The dogs could still be used to sniff out bombs, drugs, and other activities as long as they do not involve biting. During the press conference to announce the bill, Calra called the use of police dogs a practice that is rooted in slavery. So the 29-year law enforcement veteran who uh, ran a canine unit um, is, you know, is one perspective. Another perspective is people who are coming at it have nothing to do with police um, work themselves. So you're going to get one word from somebody who's a canine officer, right? You're going to get a different word altogether from somebody who has nothing to do with law enforcement. And I think that you and I, it's safe to say, are somewhere in between, that we have opinions on these sorts of matters, and we need to talk about these kinds of things. In a time right now where there are a lot of questions having to do with policing, perhaps police reform, perhaps different ways of doing it. When you've got community uh, activist groups who are asking for certain things, that there are certain groups who are overseeing police and want to have more say in what the uh, policing is, is doing, what the police are doing. What do we think of this particular bill? I also think that you could look at the other side, because I love to do this. I love to look at both sides of things. I don't think that we can possibly think of ourselves as an advanced society if we are not able to look at both sides of an argument and consider what the other side may have to say. So that's sort of what I'm trying to do right here. One side says, hey, wait a second. This is not at all what we need. This is something that is troubling. This is something that is a very difficult thing for people in the black community to deal with. The use of police canines inflicting brutal violence, lifelong trauma on black Americans and communities of color. That's what Corey Jackson says. On the other side... I think that you're going to get people who support the police officers and say that the canine officer is not only a tool used by police, but let's remember, it's a canine officer. It is considered a police officer. It's an officer of the law. It is able to do things that people may not be able to do. It is able to go places where an officer may not be able to get. It may be able to do some work that a human cannot do nearly as effectively, nearly as quickly, or maybe even as agilely as the officer that's a canine. So what do you think about this? Limiting the use of it to say that we can use the dog to sniff out bombs, drugs, and other activities as long as it does not involve biting, as long as it does not involve, basically, it sounds like apprehensions of suspects, that we use it for sniffing, but we don't use it for the actual apprehension or arrest of somebody who is a suspect or who is considered armed and dangerous and putting themselves or others in danger. 
I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. This is something that has been put out there in California. It is something that they are saying, okay, well, we're not going to use police canines for situations where they could bite someone. But we're going to use them for their sniffing capabilities. We're going to use them for uh, leading us to an explosive. We're going to use it for maybe arson work. We're going to use it in other lines, in other ways. Boy, this is a hard one. I mean, this is really a hard one. I can see both sides of the argument. I can understand that there are people who are afraid of it. Who There are people who have had experiences that are bad experiences with a canine officer. Now, have they done something that warranted that? I can't begin to answer that question. And I'm not sure anybody can answer that question, you know, in 100% honesty, knowing that they are correct or incorrect. But I'm also looking, and from my experiences in dealing with police and those who train these canines and those who use them, and those who you know, have said that think about what a, a dog is able to do in terms of saving lives because of explosives that it can sniff out, because of drug dogs that are able to find things that are trying to be smuggled in. Is that also saving lives? I think you could certainly make that argument. So where do we come down on this? How do we make a decision that's right for our society. Should it be banned? Should it be used? Should it be limited in terms of how it is used? Let's go to Kevin right now. Kevin is kind enough to join us on KDK. Hi, Kevin. How are you? How you doing? I'm all right. What do you think? Is this a tool? Is this an officer? What, what do you, first of all, help me understand that. Okay. Number one, number one, we have seen what has gone on with police. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, number two, and maybe should have been number one, I am African-American. Okay. Right? And I understand completely what this person is saying with this law he's trying to put out. Yeah. Okay? And what has happened, the dog doesn't know if you're white or black. He doesn't care. Gotcha. Yep. Okay? But the officer in control of the animal does. Yes. Yes. You're right. Okay? And, and the perspective, what happens in a lot of cases, I mean, you know, you... You know, what happens in a lot of cases is how was this dog used in cases of Af- African-American apprehension mm-hmm. or African-American crime fighting? Mm-hmm. OK. Yeah. Let's, yeah. I mean, we've got we've got to we've got to look at that. So then you're now, saying the what, handler is as much of, much of the issue as the canine itself, right? It could be. They could be. Yeah. But but now this is the other thing. If there's a murderer barricaded in a house. I don't care if he's white, black, orange, or green. You send that dog in there and you get it. Yeah. And, and that's a situation where the okay. dog can do something that maybe the human cannot, right? Right. And that's, that's just a fact. Yeah. I mean, that's just a fact. Right. But trust me, I understand what he's saying with, with the history. Mm-hmm. Because the history is, the history is that the canine has been used on African-Americans more than anyone else. Yeah. Let's just be honest. Yep. That's the truth. 
Kevin, this is uh, this is good stuff, and I sure appreciate you your willingness to to articulate where you're coming from and what you see and what because I think it brings up some things that that we haven't talked about just yet, and I sure appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, there's there's plenty of things we haven't talked about. Lots, me. lots. But we're just getting started, and I'm glad that you got us rolling in this direction. Thank you. Kevin calling yes, us today saying, hey, this is something that we need to think about and talk about in terms of where we're going with this. 866-391-1020. Sammy in Pittsburgh is up next. Rick Dayton on your radio talking about a California bill that would ban the use of police dogs. The assembly members who are proposing it said that their bill, AB 742, the use of police canines inflicting brutal violence and lifelong trauma on black Americans and communities of color. Bill marks a turning point in the fight to end this cruel and inhumane practice and build trust between the police and the communities they serve. And so they're saying you can use the dogs if they're going to be dogs that are sniffing out bombs or drugs or other activities as long as they do not involve the dog biting Someone. Let's bring in Sammy right now, who's calling us from Pittsburgh. Hi, Sammy. I understand that you had some experience with canines earlier in your life. Tell me about it. Yes, I did. Uh, this is Sandy. Oh, okay. Sammy. I'm that's sorry. A, that's I, okay, my dear. I can't read his handwriting. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, yes. I, I mean, I did. I grew up with a canine dog. And thank God for California. They are doing the right thing. I hope it becomes nationwide. I love dogs. I believe they are extremely smart, intelligent animals, and they have so many purposes and uses on this planet. We, you know, we just can't live without them. Um, but I grew up with a canine dog um, back in the 60s and the 70s. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, that dog was mean. He didn't understand the difference between who was okay and who wasn't. He would bite the neighbors. And they wouldn't turn in my father because he was a city policeman. And back in that time, you just didn't do that. Yeah. And the whole neighborhood was full of city policemen. So you didn't dare do it. And in the meantime, the kids were getting bit. I mean, he had a thing about the fence was only about four foot high, which it should have been seven foot high. And the kid could reach so, over the top of it, right? Yes. Yeah. So there was no, there was no um, um, policing of the police that had these dogs. Nobody inspected our backyard or our property. So, you know, there'd be kids playing next door. They'd lean up against the fence and he'd bite them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really horrible. It was just a horrible thing. He bit me a couple of times and then my father would beat him. It was just absolutely horrible. There, And I'm sure things are different now. At least I hope they are. Yeah. But I just don't believe that the dogs should be used to attack humans. They, they have so many other purposes, sniffing drugs, um, locating missing missing children, missing people. That You know, yes, they definitely have a purpose. But to actually harm a human, no. You're, what you're doing when you're training them is you're training them to be abusive. If you train them to bite somebody, you're training them to be mean. You're training them so to what, use that part of their body to take somebody down, right? I mean, that's exactly. that's in essence what they train them. Yeah. Yes, but aren't it, we are we smarter than that? Don't don't we have enough um, 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 things at, at our disposal that we we can stop somebody from from their their negative actions? I mean, you know, they had they they had dogs in Nazi Germany. Sure. I mean, that's that's how far back this goes. Well, yeah. Aren't we better than that? Yeah. No, I appreciate it. Sammy calling us from Pittsburgh today with her experience there. And you know what? I think the reality is this, that, you know, there there needs to be um, there needs to be a fine line 
and there needs to be a very clear line and there needs to be differentiation that is there in terms of what is being done. Um, and I think, you know, that sometimes these efforts to pass laws may go more than what one side is willing to hear and maybe not far enough as far as the other side. But I hope, if nothing else, this effort in terms of what they're doing in California allows conversations like this one to happen in other places to say, hey, what is the line? Where should that line be? And how do we use canine officers moving forward? This is KDKA on the Rick Dayton Show. Pittsburgh's news, weather, and traffic station is 100.1 FM and AM 1020 KDKA. Also on the program, we also have a good discussion about a revival in Kentucky. No, it's not a Billy Graham revival, but it's that kind of thing. It's a prayer group that started. They started more than a week ago at a little tiny college, and now people are coming from around the country and around the world, and they have gone nonstop since last Wednesday. And now they're having overflows and things like that. They can't even fit them all in the chapel. Is this people seeking something, trying to find something? What is going on with young people and a Kentucky revival? Take a listen. Have you seen what's going on on a college campus in Kentucky? A little tiny college in Kentucky and a Christian worship service at a college chapel that has ballooned into a nonstop prayer service and worship session that some are calling a revival. And the place where everybody seems to be following it is on TikTok, of all places. Viral videos there. Some people have literally traveled thousands of miles to get there to take part of it. The growing event started as a routine chapel service at Asbury University, which is a small Christian college in Wilmore, Kentucky. This according to college and university employees. At the tail end of that meeting, there were a couple dozen students still there who had gone up front and basically gathered together for what's been seven, eight straight days, 24 hours a day. This has been going on. The first day we had a very ordinary service. I would call it unremarkable said the university president, Kevin Brown. Following the morning service on February 8th, the multicultural gospel choir sang on stage. Some students stuck around afterward. By evening, more and more had trickled into the sanctuary, creating something special, said the president. It absolutely has been social media that has been the mechanism that people found out about this, said the vice president of communications, Mark Whitworth, at the school. The setup was quite simple. There's no projector screens, no high-tech integration, just wooden sanctuary pews filled with people, an open altar call with an invitation to prayer that still has not ended. That equation has been a powerful recipe on social media. Because on TikTok and Instagram, videos hashtag Asbury Revival, racking up millions of views. At the time the article was published, which was uh, a couple days ago, the hashtag of Asbury Revival had 24.4 million views on TikTok. The phrase spiritual revival can carry many different meanings, but uh, to Christians, it generally refers to the resurgence in interest in the church from believers and from non-believers. Many attendees of the Asbury gathering said they were drawn by a spiritual presence that they felt at the event. 
Now, all kinds of TikTok videos of that event. Some people seen crying to worship music. They have hands extended high. Others in the group placing their hands on those who are seeking prayer. The response of the many TikTokers has gone beyond the typical like or comment on the videos, which some cases have stirred viewers to make the trek themselves. That's right. They literally are making the drive there. Earlier this week, the largest crowd yet, 3,000 worshipers there in the college chapel. And oh, by the way, that wasn't enough. And so they had four different overflow facilities around the college town. At least two-thirds of the attendants on Tuesday night were from out of state. Students and staff from 22 schools have visited so far, alongside groups from Hawaii, Massachusetts, according to the university faculty. Travelers from Singapore and Canada are expected to arrive, uh, as a matter of fact, today. Although social media served as a lightning rod for the event, Asbury's faculty said they were cautious not to market it, not to brand what was going on there. The president of the university said, we made the intentional decision not to publicize this because we wanted to place an abundance of respect toward the experience of our students. And with the exception of regular three hours of weekly live stream from the chapel, the videos seen online have all come from participants. I mean, it's just remarkable. Somebody came from Minneapolis and he said he saw the video viral on Instagram, emphasized that the gathering, gathering was notable, low key for something that people are simply calling a revival. Acoustic guitars, pianos, and speakers. Non-charismatic speakers, this is an unsensationalized as it could be, he said. And according to him, leading the charge in the sanctuary on social media is the Gen Z generation. They're the ones who started it. They're the ones who sustained it. And they're the ones that have been on the platform the whole time. And many of the now thousands in attendance acting swiftly to embark on the trip just a day or two after learning about it on social media. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely remarkable. I'm curious to know, have you heard much about this, first of all? And secondly, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I don't think it's any question, and I have not hidden in any way, shape, or form my thoughts or my feelings on it. Grew up in the Presbyterian Church, born in the Presbyterian Church, have never been a member anywhere else. It's mainline Protestant church that has been around for many, many years. But many of these mainstream Christian churches have seen declines in populations. The Methodist, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Catholics, they have seen their numbers go down. Non-denominational churches have grown in some cases. Now I'm talking about in the USA. If you look at what's gone on in England, theirs have gone down and down and down and down. Other parts of the world, it's gone down and down as well. So I'm curious from you, what do you make of what's happening on a college campus and putting it out there where young people are the ones who are talking about it, young people are the ones sharing the videos, and young people are the ones being drawn to the service? I'm curious what you think about this. It's 313. Let's go to Rich right now. He's in his car headed home today. Rich, what do you think of this? I think it's encouraging, but I'm curious about you. I'm telling you that. You're right. I haven't heard of this until you mentioned this on my way home. And um, I think this is a fabulous thing in the times that we're living in with all the violence and the shootings and things like that going on. I think this is a, a great thing, and it's, it's a very hopeful thing to show that 
our, our students and teens are not bad people like some people might think, and there's hope, you know what I mean? No, and there's there's hope on so many levels, right, Rich? I mean, I think they're probably getting hope from the revival itself. And I think at the same time, I think that there is hope for the rest of us looking at this and saying, you know what, maybe there is something else that we need to be looking at, perhaps. I mean, I'm just I'm saying to me, maybe there's something else that needs to be considered and maybe there's something missing in our society and perhaps that's what it is, at least for these people, perhaps for them, that's what they're hoping to find. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. You're you're right on this, and this is this is a beautiful thing. Oh, it's 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 fantastic, and I sure appreciate you calling in. Drive home safely, and have a good weekend. All right. Yeah, buddy. You yep. too. Bye Thanks, bye. Rich, calling us from the road. Let's go to Don now in Moon Township. Hi, Don. You're on KDK. How are you? I'm doing well, Rick. How are you? I'm okay. Thoughts? What do you think? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think on the one hand, it's fascinating. I mean, very encouraging that uh, you know these these young people are. Uh, getting together and that it could last that long and, uh, you know, just wanting to pray, wanting to worship. And, uh, wow, people from uh, other, even apparently uh, other parts of the world coming. I, I, I guess my thought is that time will tell as to whether this uh, is really a revival. I mean, with the revivals of the past, like the Great Awakening and things like that, you had, uh, you know, uh, more and more people coming to church, more and more people uh, right. being converted, more and more right. the society being affected. Sure, um, sure. And in uh, and, and a lot of uh, instances, uh, in, in, in some cases, this is just, well, this is a uh, temporary thing, and uh, then uh, before you know it, people go back to their old ways. So it'll be interesting to see. And I think it's too soon to call this a revival, but time will tell, and uh, uh, praise God that uh, young people are... Um, you know, wanting to do this, and that that's great. Yeah, and I just think it's remarkable that if I'd have said to you at the beginning of January, hey, by the way, coming up in the middle of February, there's going to be a college where kids start a worship service, and it's going to go on and into the second week, and, and it would go on nonstop. I think a lot of people have said, I don't think so. I, I'm not sure right. that people would have believed that at all. Don, thank you for calling in. Thanks thank for you. weighing in. I sure appreciate it. Don from Moon Township joining us here today. What about you? 866-391-1020, 866 866- Three nine one ten twenty. This is not like having a Billy Graham revival. I mean, maybe it is kind of like it. I mean, it maybe has the same goal, but it's not like you've got a gregarious, magnanimous speaker up there. These are kids getting together, playing the guitars, playing the piano, talking, thinking, praying, and bringing the world's eyes to what they're doing in Kentucky. Let's talk about it. People coming from all over the United States, even from around the world, to a old-fashioned revival at a Kentucky college. A senior from Wheaton College in Illinois said he first heard about the gathering from an Instagram video. Shortly after that, made the six-and-a-half-hour drive to Wilmore because he said he wanted to be there. He said he left without even a plan. In the chapel at Wheaton, there was encouragement to pay attention to a move that was going on at Asbury, and hours later, he was there in person. What do you make of this old-fashioned revival that's happening on a Kentucky college campus? D, I'm glad to have you on the phone from Pittsburgh. How are you? Hey, I'm finding yourself here. What do you think of uh, the old-fashioned revival? You think there's something to it? You think people are looking for something, or what's happening there? Well, I'll tell you what. uh, I'm a preacher's kid. My father's uh, Southern Baptist. I grew up in South Florida. I live in Pittsburgh now. But uh, I'm thinking uh, these Generation Z folks are thinking, well, uh, like the the previous caller called and said, uh, number one, they're hoping. Yeah. And uh, I think they're thinking, well, government— 
has failed us. Uh, the local politicians has failed us. Hopefully God doesn't fail us. So I think there's a big hope uh, 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 ideal or idea, uh, and it doesn't hurt to get together and, and, and pray and worship with other like people. And like I said before, I think they're hoping that, you know, everyone else has failed them for the most part with the, the mass shootings and the violence. Uh, hopefully God doesn't fail them. Is it a chance that they're also searching, D? I mean, and is there a difference between hoping and, and searching? Maybe not. Well, well uh, hoping and searching, uh, it's kind of the same thing. I think uh, they're searching for the truth uh, and hoping for a better world. Uh, mm. I think the two kind of go hand in hand. They're looking for something, and uh, hopefully they'll find it spiritually because uh, – here on the earth here, it's, uh, things are kind of uh, on edge. Yeah, indeed. So you didn't end up in the ministry, but your dad your dad was? Uh, no, but I participated in a lot of church uh, situations because I was a preacher's kid. I had to set the, set the bar. <laughs> because you were a preacher's kid, absolutely. Well, D, I sure appreciate you calling. I hope that you have a great weekend, all right? Uh, yeah, thank you. D calling us from Pittsburgh here today on KDK. I mean, it's just, it's interesting how TikTok and Instagram, I mean, and people all the time are bashing, and I do it too. I mean, I do it too, that there's a lot of garbage out there on social media. But to see something like this and to see that be the way that this has exploded, I think is fascinating. Again, it's not a lot of high-tech stuff. It's not a lot of celebrities coming up on stage and putting out that, hey, come see me because I'm going to be here. It's none of that. Not even projectors up on the screens with multimedia stuff. It is a guitar, a piano, and some people speaking and singing and praying and getting together for an old-fashioned revival in Kentucky. And the world has been watching. And those are the things we learned on this 17th day of February. So glad you're with us. Always can pull things from our podcast page at kdkradio.com or on Odyssey. Anywhere you get your podcast, just search for Rick Dayton and you'll find segments that we've done all week long. I'll see you on Monday on the radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.